Hey there. Welcome to Sobertown Podcast. I want to invite you to visit the wonderful world of sobriety. You can visit our website, which is SobertownPodcast.com. This is where you can find sober tools for your sober toolbox, such as Todd's blog on how to successfully manage alcohol triggers and cravings. We also post the Rewired Podcast and the schedule for Zooms. This is where you can find all these beautiful recovery stories that we all share from our heart of our hero's journey. We also have a Facebook community, Sobertown Facebook. I want to introduce myself. My name is Viv. Some of you know me as Sober I Thrive on the I Am Sober app, which we warmly know as IAS. The I Am Sober app is a daily counter that you can download in your app store. It's easy. It's free. And that's where we all met and we contribute to SobertownPodcast.com. On there, there's a community button where we can create community and connection. In addition, I'm a sober recovery coach certified in roots of addiction, the joys of sober recovery, and the neuroscience of addiction. I'm also a certified life coach. All you have to do to take advantage of a complimentary call with me for 30 minutes is send me your email. And you can send this email to viv at soberithrive.org. All it takes to change your life is to take the first step and schedule your confidential, complimentary call. Everyone needs a sober cheerleader. And with the SoberTownPodcast.com, we can help create the sober warrior within you. Today, I have a very special guest, a friend of all of ours on the Sober Squad. He's a host most nights and a good friend. He goes by Saddle Tramp on IAS, and we all know him warmly as Doug. He's here to tell us about his hero's journey through recovering of his own soul of the sober night. Doug, how are you? Doing good, Viv. How about you this evening? I'm doing amazing. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate everything that you're doing for this community and for giving us your recovery story because it's amazing. Well, as they say in the business, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to tell this story because everybody's story is the same and yet everybody's story is different because at some point we all fell victim to our own devices found our way down into a deep, dark place that we didn't know how the fuck to get out of. And I certainly didn't find my way out by myself. And, you know, with the help of a lot of friends over the last long time on the planet, here we are today. So just as a question, how many years of sobriety from alcohol? Okay. Well, as of this writing being the 5th of September of, yeah, 22, I haven't had a drink my last drink was August 31st of 2001. And I mean, but it's, you know, like the old timers have told me, it's just one day at a time. You just, you get up every day, you don't drink and you don't die. It's release. At that point, it's that simple. Was it that simple in the early days? No, it was not. So speaking of those early days, take us back to little Doug, little Saddle Trump. Where were you born and how did your story start? Well, I was born in a little town called Sigourney, Iowa. I was actually born in the same town my mom was born in. 
and her side of the family grew up there. We lived on a farm outside of South English, Iowa. That was the first place I remember. And yeah, typical Iowa farm boy, grew up learning how to do chores, milk cows, make hay, gather eggs, you know, whatever it took. I was the oldest of five. I was born in November of 1956, which is way long goddamn time ago. (laughs) And almost happy birthday, too. But it seems like, you know, sometimes, you know, time is such a funny thing. And sometimes it feels like a long time ago, and sometimes it was just a blank. Yeah. Grew up on the farm, took a school bus to school, and yeah, hung out with the other kids, just like everybody else. Do you want to take us through when was your first drink? Well, I didn't discover alcohol until I was, really until I was 14 or 15. By that point, we had moved a couple of times. I remember, you know, growing up on this little, you know, literally tar paper shack on a farm. Then we moved to the big house that my grandpa and grandma had lived in before they moved to town. Because we were always renters or sharecroppers, we ended up moved to the little town of Delta, Iowa, and I got to go from the school district that my dad had grown up in, in English Valleys, to Sydney schools where mom had grown up. And uh, yeah, my cousin had filtered some, some sort of alcohol, oh, slow gin, out of his parents' little liquor supply under the sink and put it in Avon bottles, for God's sake. Oh my God. Oh, that was a rude, yeah. Rude introduction to alcohol, and I've not done slow gin as, any, ever since because that with, mixed with the Avon just was the perfect, very nasty taste. I can't even imagine. Didn't really much happen with that because it really was not planable. But what really happened, what started the journey was my cousin was signed up for the Marines. His dad threw a party for those of us cousins in that similar age bracket where they bought a case of beer for each of us. They figured that'd keep us, you know, busy for the night. And we drank probably half of the case of beer before we decided we wanted to play with big boys and started, you know, chasing beers with seven sevens. Apparently I passed out in the corn crib somewhere. They drug me in, threw me on the floor. The next morning I woke up and I couldn't move as much as a fingertip without getting the dry heaves. If that shouldn't have been a notice, I don't know why I wasn't, but it certainly didn't stop me from ever drinking again. So but that was the first time that I really got blazed. I know that you mentioned when we spoke before and listening to your recording, your dad, he also, he didn't take a drink till he was 21, right? Right. Yeah. Well, that was, he was disappointed in all us kids because he never touched a drop until he turned 21 because it wasn't legal. Mm-hmm. But ever turned a drop down after he turned 21. The only time I ever saw him not drink was when he was in the hospital recovering from triple bypass surgery. He was a pint to a fifth a day bourbon supreme man. And he'd start in the morning with his, you know, whatever color of glass the day was, but it'd be half bourbon and half water. And yeah, he just ultimately drank himself to death. But here, so yeah, he went out, we put him in a box 29 years ago this summer. Good son that I was. I put a half pint in with him just in case he got thirsty when he woke up. So. Well, when he passed away, I was nowhere close to coming into or t- into terms with my need to get into recovery. So, Right. We don't really learn through others most of the time by watching others. We just kind of have to go through the experiences ourselves, right? 
you know, by that point, I had already had two DUIs. I got my first one in Germany. I broadsided a German police car on the last night of Flushing, which is a German festival season that starts the 11th of November and goes through, is it Ash Tuesday or Shrove Tuesday, the night before Ash Wednesday in the end season, I believe. And yeah, I didn't even know we were in an accident. We were walking around surveying the damages when all of a sudden I'm like, what is this? And the police I had to draw a picture for me before I could make my statement because I had absolutely no clue. Wow. Wow. And you were in Germany. I was Air Force. I'd been in Germany for a year and a half or not quite a year and a half at that point. But uh, yeah. After that car crash and listening to some of your story, you were in the Air Force in, in 1978. And you mentioned that was your first brush with AA, right? Well, yeah, because I had the opportunity. My supervisor suggested that I go talk with the base alcohol recovery program because it would look more favorable to my commander when I had to go stand in front of him and tell him what I had done. See, when I got popped by the pull or when I broadsided the German police, they called the military police. They picked me up at the German police station, took me to the army base on the other side of Zweibrücken. And they're like, do you want us to call your commander to come get you? It's four o'clock in the morning. I don't think so. So I walked across Zweibrücken in the middle of February in a t-shirt, fucking cold, freezing my ass off, get to the base, go talk to my supervisor. And, you know, because it took me couple hours to walk across town and yeah just it was what it was i did that to reduce the impact on my stripes finances and career not that i had a career but and then ended up yeah they had this little book had you know words alcoholics anonymous on the cover of it and oh i managed to stay clean and sober for three whole weeks that i could jump faster and run higher and all that good stuff and because them, them old boys, them old some fucked up individuals. I didn't have a problem. I, you know, had a little issue that I had overdrank that one particular night, but at least that's how I felt at the time. So ended up suspended fine, suspended bust. And after 90 days, they wiped my record clean because I was getting a new commander. And since I had actually just received the Air Force Good Conduct Medal, just a little bit prior to that, so basically, I just never got caught doing it before that. Totally understand. So you were like flying under the radar, it seems like a little bit, right? Absolutely. Because, you know, and in, in true, you know, good boy fashion, I wasn't just drinking. I was, you know, doing drugs like they're out of style too, just because they were available. And I honestly, I like drugs better because I hadn't blacked out on any drugs that I've ever taken. Oh, I got out of the Air Force, at, I don't know, a couple, two, couple years at home, had a job, actually went through two or three jobs in the course of a couple of years, decided it was time to pack up my marbles and move to Colorado because I was just not having a good time in Iowa at that point. Things just weren't clicking very well. So I moved to Colorado, got really involved in motorcycle. That's where I bought my first Harley. Started hanging out with a bunch of folks that, you know, liked to party and race hell just like I did. And yeah, kind of found my way into the motorcycle community, made a lot of really good friends, drank a lot, smoked a lot, sold a lot of drugs because that's what we did just for fun. I'm, I was my best customer. Fuck, I never made any money. I knew a lot of guys made a lot of money selling drugs. I didn't do that. I got a job in a bar as a bouncer and 
got worked my way up from bouncer to bartender and lost that January 1st of 83, got caught doing a line of cocaine on the upstairs bar at midnight by a manager that they'd brought in from Tucson just to try and clean up the bar. I had heard it was on New Year's Eve, right? <laughs> yeah, like right at, you know, midnight. Right at midnight. Oh, my God. Nobody else in the whole fucking upstairs. I thought it was just me. And this guy walks around the corner. I was like, but it was what it was. Not that big of a deal. And I went from that, went through lots of different jobs, picked up a wife, started having babies, went back to school. Well, somewhere in there, I got my second DUI in Colorado. But that was before I got involved with my first wife and before we had babies or anything like that. I got popped for driving under the influence. And at the time, I actually had a quarter ounce of pot in my pocket too. But as we're walking into the jailhouse, I pull out out of my pocket, let it fall down. And, you know, I was, I think, 166 alcohol level, which compared to some numbers I've heard is really not that big. And I was certainly conscious. I was not blacked out that time. I just, you know, couldn't keep it between the lines. And they let me call a buddy and pick me up and take me home. And he dropped me off at my roommate's house. And we walked back down to the jailhouse and picked up that quarter ounce pot and took it back up to the house and smoked it. Ultimately, you know, I got to go to court for the DUI and I was given the possibility of getting sentenced to what do they call it? Alcohol evaluation and treatment, which was like $50 a week for as long as they decided that you needed to go to alcohol evaluation and treatment. And I'm like, you know, your honor, I obviously didn't learn anything from my first DUI, which at that point was seven years prior. And if it pleased the court, I would like to have, you know, be sentenced to the county jail on the week, on the weekends so that I wouldn't lose the new job that I just got. His honor proceeded to inform me that I was in no position to set conditions on the court and sentenced me to 15 days on the weekend. You, sir, appreciate it. You know, first weekend in, yeah, I was nuts. I popped two hits of acid and walked into the jailhouse. I knew I wasn't going to be going anywhere. The nurse thought my heart rate was a little bit accelerated. And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm a little nervous about this whole jail thing. But at this point, I was just starting to peak. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, dollar for dollar, it was your best entertainment value. But I'm not advocating drugs, certainly, because, you know, the grace of God, I should have been agreed about so many fucking times. This is what makes our stories is this is the color of our stories. This is who we are as far as what our history is. This allows us to see that our human side, that those of us, you know, the, the, the listeners that are out there, that they're not alone. This is the humanity. This is who we are. And this is where we came from. So, I mean, your life's been super interesting. So, so take it from there. Well, from that one, well, let's see. The next time I got to spend a weekend in jail, I actually wasn't because of alcohol, which was the first, because prior to that, any of my brief interactions with the jailhouse had always been alcohol. -like. I got a speeding ticket for running 85 in a 55, and it happened to be the first week, or the, it was a work day. It was the first time my wife, at that time, girlfriend, she was pregnant with her daughter and was having morning sickness issues. And she didn't feel like going to work that day. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And I rode the bike in and we lived at 9,500 feet up Cold Creek Canyon, Colorado. I followed five cars, nine miles down the hill, 
up through some of the most beautiful twisty turtle roads at 25 fucking mile an hour because they were in cars and can't drive well and i would have been more than happy to pass them but there's no place to pass finally the last open space i roll out crank it up blow by all five cars and then for kind of forgot to slow down well then the state trooper was waiting for me at the bottom of the hill and he'd clocked me across a measured mile and said, well, this is how many seconds it took for you to cross that mile. And I pulled my calculator out of my backpack because I'm working as an electronics tech at this point. I'm, you know, entering the numbers. Yeah, yeah. that sounds about right because I didn't have a speedometer. I was running, you know, probably four grand on the tack, which, you know, anything above 75 mile an hour, it was just smoother. And I laughed, but I didn't care. And he said I had a pretty good attitude for getting a six point moving violation. I'm like, well, you're allowed 12 in a year, right? He's like, well, yeah, but you're only allowed 18 in two years. I'm like, oh, shit. So that made 18 points, which meant that I got to go for a hearing to talk to a judge. And they had a girl that had just been promoted to referee from public defender, and she wanted to be making a name for herself being tough on crime. She offered me a plea bargain of five points for passing a stopped school bus. And I'm like, no. I don't want that on my record. Thank you very much. I'll take six points. And well, that involves a weekend in jail. Okay, I can do that, you know. So they put me into the county jail in Golden, Colorado. They were just getting ready to build, or they were getting ready to open their new jail. And this is one of the last times they were going to be using this old jail. And jailers thought it was, you know, a bullshit thing that they would give me a jail, weekend in jail for a speeding ticket. Let me, you know, be a trustee. <laughs> so I got a different color uniform and I got to go around and dust all the bars in the jailhouse and they busted me out with 60% of time served. Once it told me that it was this referee was this former public defender that was being tough on crime. Yeah. Understandable. So what did you do from that point? What, ha- what happened? So you did, are you married at that point? Oh, we, I, we had to wait until my wife got her divorce from her first marriage about a month after that. And then we got married a couple months later, had our daughter. A few months after that, I started back after back into school. Well, actually, yeah, I started going to school part-time at the community college and uh, going to school nights, working days, you know, typical, do what you got to do to survive in today's world. Ended up, we moved from, oh hell, we moved one, two, three, four or five times before we ended up in Thornton, Colorado when I was going to school at Metro in Denver. And I went back to school full-time in fall of 89 and graduated in the end of summer of 92 with a bachelor's degree in engineering. Now at the time I was working, you know, work study through the school while I was getting electronics and computer science degree. And I was actually working in the network lab, hanging the internet on campus because when I was in school, we didn't have the internet yet. It was just starting out. So you were in the innovation um, at the front end of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. What was happening at that time? So take us through that. Well, what was happening was I'd actually gone to a counselor at the VA hospital in Denver, trying to get some help for my drinking and drugging problems. And we were, you know, just getting a good rapport developed with this counselor and, you know, four or five sessions in, you know, I asked a question. I was like, just humor me. I'm curious. Are you experienced with any of this? And she refused to answer. And at that point, it was like, you know, 
there was a, we had an open line of communication until that moment. And then it was like, there was a big funnel that just went down to a little bitty tube between us. And it kind of went to hell from there. And I never went back because she wasn't going to be honest with me. And I had nothing to listen to from her. And at this point, I had at least been exposed a couple of times to AA. And there was this little, you know, one alcoholic talking to another is what works best. I didn't listen to much. I should, I went to AA and I wouldn't even drink the coffee. I'd, you know, we'd smoke joints on the way to the meetings and we'd go to the bar after. You were just there to serve for the purpose and the time, right? Yeah. Well, actually, I wasn't even sentenced to go to AA. I was going there to support a buddy and cocaine and he had to go. And he needed somebody to drive him because he'd lost his license. And I still had my license at that point. So, yeah, I was just going to support him. Didn't go to listen to anything. Didn't hear a fucking thing anybody had to say. But something clicked through. And then, yeah, moved to Iowa. Got a job at Rockwell Collins working on avionics boxes, working on SATCOM systems, which is the same thing that I do for Boeing now. Just I'm on the other side of the supplier-manufacturer interface. But yeah, did that for a couple of years, had an incident where I had displayed what my wife at that point considered was an inappropriate response to a situation. And she suggested I seek counseling or a divorce lawyer. And since we had in-house counselors, I walked by every day on my way into my office. I chose counseling, discovered at the tender age of 39 that I was also AD, having not, you know, been convinced that AD was a valid Concept prior to that, I thought it was all psychobabbler bullshit to help, you know, the psychobabblers make money. And this counselor, you know, goes through this 20, 20 questions list, and I hit 18 or 19 out of them, 20 questions positive. She says, You're probably, yeah, AD, got set up with a full blown psychologist, had to go through all this questioning and testing and bullshit. And yeah, verily, I was ADD, but then I could accept the fact that, well, my son might be too. And we, Got another opportunity to read another book that showed our life on every page. It was called Driven to Distraction by Edward M. Hallowell, written back in the mid-90s, because that's when I was diagnosed. Yeah, I read all the books on AD, discovered that they thought that a rough percentage of population that are incarcerated was probably 75% ADD kids who were self-medicating because they didn't know they had a problem. And that rang home pretty hard. But yeah, I still, I mean, hell, we were still drinking and drugging and riding motorcycles like they were going out of, you know, like we knew how, because we did. And that's why I tell people that our kids were raised by wolves because we had no, no interest in this recovery business. We weren't even trying to get sober. And then at some point in 2000, my wife decided that it was done because she got tired of raising three kids and we only had two. I talked to her a couple of months ago. And she mentioned the fact that a contributing factor to the demise of our relationship was the fact that I refused to grow up. I'm like, yeah, and your fucking point is, why would I ever want to do that? I still have reservations. Play a big kid fairly well some days, but, you know, we're all deep inside. We're all still little kids at heart, I think. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. A thousand percent, I agree with you. uh, Yeah, ended up moved into town with a buddy of mine from work and it was just perfect because he had a tapper keg on his back porch and I brought a 12 by 12 Ziploc baggie full of weed along so that I had my contribution and we pretty much got wasted every night and worked hard all day every day and then the end of August I was driving back to the country to see the 
soon to be ex and the kids. And at that point I was, you know, also doing a little couch surfing on friends places that had lots of beers in their fridges. And so I, on my way driving out to the country, I'd stopped the last convenience store leaving town to pick up a 16 ounce can. So if I could get to the next convenience store, 10 miles down the road and get another 16 ounce can and have two, you know, tall boys in my belly before I got out to see the ex of the kids. And I was putting the beer back between my legs as the state trooper drove by and waved, you know, just hi, because, well, he was our next door neighbor. You know, actually he lived a mile down the road from us, but you know, out in the country, when you're living, you know, five miles from the nearest town, everybody's your neighbor and everybody knows everybody. We discovered his presence when we had a housewarming party the first time, or actually it was the graduation party for my wife. And we had a buddy brought some, you know, the full up DJ system out that he had never played the big speakers outdoors before. And he pointed them, you know, just the right direction that the sound traveled up the valley behind our house out in the country and was causing the troopers' walls to vibrate. So he came down about 11 o'clock at night and asked us if we'd turn it down just a little bit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, hell, if we'd have known you were that close, we'd have invited you. So the next time we had a housewarming party after we built a brand new house in 2000, we invited everybody for about five months around. <laughs> you guys are good neighbors. <laughs> Well, yeah. And we had, you know, some friends of mine were in a band. So we hired them to come out and play. We had a keg of Samuel Adams and a keg of Bud Light just to, you know, start the evening off right. And look, we drained both of those, had to go to town and get another keg. And everybody that came brought bottles. We had a table full of bottles and shit. And that's just how it was. And it was kind of <laughs> that and she said it was time for me to go. For her, I guess, what it seems like is that it was fun till it wasn't. Well, exactly. And then about six, seven months after that, well, actually several months, several more months after that, she, you know, met this guy and he turned her on to AA and she got clean and sober six months before I considered the idea. Whacking me upside the head with that fucking blue book. And she's like, you should read this. You should read this. You're now call. Fuck you. You don't want me to live here. I'm not going to listen to anything you have to say. So yeah, I didn't. And then I made the decision that I did, or at least I wanted to stop. And after 90 days of white knuckling it, I actually, first I handled a guy at work, you know, I was going out to smoke a cigarette, stopped and asked him if he wanted to come out for a smoke. And he came out with me and pointed out that he hadn't had a smoke for six months. He quit. I'm like, oh, really? Well, I'm not worried about the coffin nails yet. I'm, you know, still trying to get the beer goggles put down. And he asked me if I was a friend of Bill W's. And I'm like, well, I know who Bill W is, but apparently we're not on speaking terms right now. So no, I don't. You a friend of Bill's? Well, yes. And he told me there was a meeting about three blocks down the road from the shop. Like, well, maybe. But might you have one of them blue books I could borrow? Well, sure. But I had to hound him for three weeks before he'd bring one of those books in. And I had probably half that book read before I walked into that next AA meeting. And at that point, I walked in. I didn't say a word to anyone throughout the whole meeting, but everybody that said anything made sense. It was like somebody won't click. What was the, like the turning point? What made you, was it the separation that you had gone through with your first wife, with your wife? Well, that was a part of it. The other part of it was I didn't want to go out like my own man, because by this point, Pappy, we'd already had him in a box eight years before. I didn't want to go out as a fucking, you know, hardcore drunk. That was really more, more so even, I think, than the separation. But the separation was certainly a contributing factor because it enabled me to 
spend more time with myself. <laughs> Thank you. That'll do it. Solitude, right? <laughs> you know, as opposed to, you know, having a wife and two kids and reading to the kids every night, you know, getting fucked up every night because it's just what we did anyway. So, so what, so what happened? So take us there. So what happened that night, actually, I met a friend of mine that I still keep in contact with. He's out in Vermont and he still struggles with various issues because he's got various other issues. All of most of us do. But yeah, I started hanging out at the AA with the AA community, started going to a few meetings, got a sponsor, talked to him about whether I should probably go over to that other little group called NA because I had drug issues as well. And they're like, oh, just stay here. You know, you don't have to go and talk to them. We have a lot of drug fiends over here too. And besides, there's nobody over there that's been sober for 10 years yet. And here there were guys in the room with 20, 30, 40 fucking years sober time. Just stay. Okay, I will. And ended up, that sponsor didn't work out well for me for multiple reasons. Part of it was timing. Part of it was I was having a hard time listening to a guy that was younger than I was. I mean, fuck, I was only in my early 40s then, or mid-40s. But I saw these other couple other fellows. My next sponsor was zen as fuck, and he was like about 20 years sober at that point. You know, he's six, seven years old. I wanted what he had because he had... And so he was my sponsor when I got my first one-year chip in 2003, January. My ex was there when I got my first chip because she had over a year sober at that point. And she was still, you know, my kids were still in school. She was still living with them. She hadn't moved to Missouri to be with her new fellow until after my son graduated from high school. And, and she told my sponsor that had she heard of Alamon, we might have still been together. But since she hadn't, divorce and that was that she ended up got married to that guy a couple years after we got divorced so you know it was what it was and i got i also got active online in recovery with this outfit called sober24.com and she had actually turned me on to that group what was it well what it was a website that a guy in delaware had started because he saw a need for people to be able to find help in recovery online he'd started this all by himself with another computer guy geek that he met in, in a rehab somewhere. And they put this site together and they had different, you know, kind of not like the milestones groupings that they have on the IAS app, but they had different discussion areas like, you know, new recovery, you know, oh my God, my hair's on fire or, you know, families in recovery or this or that, you know, eating disorders, codependence, just they had about seven or eight different major topic areas where you could write your stories back and forth with people, but they also had a chat room where you could actually get online and communicate with others that understood. But in the beginning, you could only get about 10 people in the chat room at a time because that's, well, the internet was much smaller than computers were much smaller than technology was much smaller. Right. Wait, wait. So thrilled when they expanded it to have 25 slots in the chat room. If this was more or less around what year was that? I actually got into Sober 24 in 2000, the December of 2001 and stopped everything with the drugs and alcohol in Jan. I stopped drinking in 2001, like end of August, and stopped smoking weed the 3rd of January, 2002. Okay. So then, it, yeah, around 2002, you were doing the Al Anon? I, no, I hadn't even got to Al Anon. Oh, okay. Until shit, 20, 
2015, 2018, somewhere in there. Okay. So then it was in, you were with your first wife and then take us through, she got turned you on to the 24 online? Over24.com. And I started hanging out with them kids. And I was in that fucking chat room. I mean, I used to talk with my kids, you know, out in the country through the chat room because she'd, you know, sign in and then she'd turn the keyboard over to one of the kids and I'd talk with them. Then I'd talk with the other one. And then I'd sit there and rant and rave with one of those, these old boys with 20 plus years out in Southern California that would point me to read a certain page in that pretty blue book every fucking day. And that helped. But yeah, after a year on that site, then the guy that owned it, I woke up the day after my one year anniversary. And now I had a different set of controls on the keyboard because he made me a monitor, a monitor in this online recovery space for about five, six years. So you're whatever you were pioneering it well we didn't see it as so much as that we were just there to help ourselves and help other people because they're the ones that taught me that you had to give it away to keep it very good saying very good saying it's so interesting because okay so at that point in time you're on the 24 you're separated from your wife and then there was a reference to something in aa that they kept repeating to you. I thought that was really beautiful. It was, had to do with acceptance, right? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that was that page that the old boy kept telling me to look at, which was now page 417 then, because it was still the third edition of the book. It was page 449. And it has that little bit, if you don't mind, I'll... Of course. Read you a paragraph, because we actually did that in the boys' meeting Sunday morning. We invite that, absolutely. We want... Does, well, it just... It helped. And it helps. It helps others that are listening as well. There's no one way. Story called acceptance was the answer. And there's just one paragraph that really covers, you know, the whole thing. And that was the paragraph that old pop in Southern California had me read every fucking day for two or three or four or five years. Every time I start bitching about this, bitching about that, go read 449. Fuck you, pop. And I go read 449. But this is the paragraph. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, saying, or situation, some fact in my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Unless I accepted life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. That's, in a nutshell, that's the story right there. Beautiful. That's, I mean, that's beautiful. And it, it seemed to have bled in over the course of two or three years of reading it every day. So that is the key because that was, you know, Going back to the Al-Anon side, I didn't get into that until I moved from Tacoma over to Gig Harbor and picked up a sponsor that had been 24 years in AA and 20 years in Al-Anon. And he suggested that, you know, because by that time that I got connected with him, my second wife had returned to active alcoholism and he thought I would really benefit from going to Al-Anon. AA, they tell you that you're powerless over alcohol. Your life would become an unmanageable. Alamon, they tell you, you're powerless over people, places, and things. What the fuck else is there? So that way you with mostly this little gray space between your ears that you can control. And now. Right. 
I thought that was, I mean, that when I first heard that from you, it was so, that's the truth. It's every, that covers the major two parts of our struggle yes. is, you know, the people, places and things and acceptance. So I thought that was really beautiful. I want us to go back a little bit. And in that chat room, you met your second wife, right? Yeah. Take us back there. Well, I mean, because I had been, you know, hanging out in this chat room for a long time, talking to people all over the planet. I mean, to me, the most beautiful thing with that chat room was no matter what time it was, where any of us were sitting, we were all right here, right now. Just like the Zooms where we've got kids in Australia, England, US, Canada, wherever on the planet, we're all, you know, we, you and I, for change, we actually are in the same time zone. So it's, you know, same that time for you as it is for me. She was in Las Vegas. I was in Iowa. We got to talking. We we're chatting back and forth on the chat room. And she was like, well, when can we take this to the next level? Because you had the opportunity. You could do private chats in that just like you can on Zoom. You know, you could either chat to the whole room or you could just chat to an individual. And we'd been, you know, talking on the side for a while and said, when can we take this to the next level? I'm like, well, what does that even mean? Well, when can we talk on the phone? I'm like, well, what's your phone number? And so, she was from New York, right? Or the Bronx. Well, she was born and raised in the Bronx, but she was living in Las Vegas at the time. I see. And so she gave me her phone number and we started talking on the phone every night. And I had never in my life talked to any person that long every day for months. You were smitten. Yes. And she drove out to Iowa from Las Vegas because she didn't want to be, you know, committed to having to wait for an airplane if shit went sideways. And I was one of these, you know, internet freaks. It was, well, I mean, this was, you know, 2004. It's still kind of scary, but yeah, it was 2004. So it was even more scarier, right? Well, yeah, because we didn't have, you know, we weren't shooting pictures back and forth or we certainly weren't doing any video chats or anything like that because just didn't exist and yeah she came out and i walk out and i'm you know i'm just me <laughs> and she was just absolutely gorgeous and yeah the rest as they say is history she got she went back to las vegas we kept going back and forth i'd fly out there she'd fly back out to iowa and then she decided because she was a medical transcriptionist and she could work from anywhere she had that whole work from staying home going back then and so she moved out, got a room in an old, used to be a, the Roosevelt Hotel downtown Cedar Rapids, but it had been converted to, you know, rent rooms for rent and condominiums. She liked it because, you know, she could leave her window open and she was right next to the interstate and all the sirens and all the shit that I didn't like to hear at night. It made her feel comfortable because it reminded her of the big cities. Right. And then she was about to move back to Las Vegas and... I can give her a call on the phone and said, Hey, you know, when you come live with, move in with me, cause we really didn't give this a chance. And she moved in and yeah, a year and a half later, we were married and buying a house. And then a couple of years after that, we moved to Reno because she wanted to go in school, go to school in Reno. She was in, her mom was in at that point had moved to Florida, but had been in Nevada before. And I couldn't buy a job, couldn't get a job, couldn't do anything hardly. Then I started getting calls from recruiters all over the country. I made the decision to move up to Washington. I was being chased by a shop in Marina del Rey and one in Seattle, actually in Renton. And 
you know, they're in a bidding war for my services. And I'm like, so what's the bottom line? Well, the bottom line is humans can't afford to live in the Marina Del Rey, at least not working class humans. No. <laughs> and I had not been to Southern California. I spent a couple of years in Northern California in the year. They had not ever been to the Pacific Northwest, except for when I flew up to interview. Seattle just seemed a lot more promising than Southern California at that time. So I packed up a motorcycle, rode up to Renton, had a, had a roommate off Craigslist and brought her up. That was Labor Day weekend. Actually, yeah, this weekend. Yeah. How many years ago? 11. That was in 2011. Okay. Yeah. Brought her up over Thanksgiving of that year. So then what happened? Well, what happened is I stopped going to meetings. I stopped hanging out with people in recovery. I stopped doing all the things that I needed to do to keep my head screwed on straight and got her off of opiate painkillers. She had some herniated discs. She had fibromyalgia. She had, we had wrestled with multiple doctors for multiple years trying to find a workable combination to keep her pain levels managed. And finally got her off of opiates and onto medical marijuana, which was a godsend for her. But put my old girlfriend, Mary Jane, back in my daily observation range. And about a year and a half later, I cracked under the pressure. And, oh, I just wanted to have a taste. I wanted to see what this medical marijuana stuff was all about. It was good. <laughs> and right back down the fucking rabbit hole I ran. And it took me a while to recognize the fact that, yes, I could smoke marijuana alcoholically. When I heard your story and it was, I didn't think I had a problem because I had smoked it easily for like 20 years or something like that. 30. Figure I started smoking weed the same summer I started really smoking drinking, which was when I was 15. And I really stopped at 45. So I smoked weed off and on for 30 years. And then I picked it up and smoked it just like I had before, which was, you know, started off light and went heavy. But, you know, I, I hadn't lost a job due to weed before. I hadn't fucked up any cars due to weed before. I hadn't, you know, lost any relationships, which I was in the process of having some real turbulent times with her for multiple reasons. I was becoming disconnected, not available. And she had, you know, met a guy that was charming her off of the internet. And, you know, ultimately, got, I got her brought back to Washington. And but she had gone off and deep end with alcohol. Oh, she had relapsed and then... Yes, and oh. got her into a rehab. They changed all of her meds. She almost had a fucking heart attack, landed in a cardiac intensive care unit for a few days because of the harsh adjustment at the rehab center. And finally got her into another detox, got her into another rehab out by the ocean, which was the most beautiful fucking place in the world. But Right after getting her into rehab, I lost my job because, yeah, I was fucking up. I was getting stoned before I went to work. I was getting stoned lunch. I was getting stoned after work. So, yeah, I was smoking weed alcoholically. And that's when I went crawling back into AA for the fourth time. <laughs> so it was what we know now, we'd call it a cross addiction, right? I don't cross anything. I'd say it was parallel. <laughs> parallel addiction. I was uncomfortable. Like a buddy of mine, I got to listen to a friend from the AA club that I go to now down there in Auburn tell his story at his 39th anniversary. And he said he was poly addicted. And I hadn't heard that term before either. 
So yeah, basically addicted to anything and everything that you can do in excess. You're addicted to being addicted, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then I get this new addiction called IAS and Zooms. But these are good addictions, you know? But they can also be overwhelming as well. And that's, you know, I was chatting in a Zoom one night with a lady who were actually typing a reply to her on the app as to what nights I could be found in Zooms. And I'm like, well, let's see, there's, oh, fuck, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, fuck, man. Plus, I was going to three AA meetings a week. Plus, I had started going to this recovery circle here in town at the local recovery cafe. And, yeah, it was too much. I totally understand. But where would we be without you? Well, we'd be finding another, you know, drunk junk monkey to come out and learn how to do tech stuff and figure out how to get in and out of the doors of the Zoom. Right. So, so I want us to take us back. So your wife, your second wife had gone into the treatment center. We were talking about that and the treatment center, you were saying that it just didn't seem. Well, it wasn't working because they weren't listening to her. You know, she was struggling with pain because they had changed her fucking medication. I mean, we had just the year before finally got a really good between Lyrica, I don't know if you've heard of that one or not. They advertise it on TV. Everybody's heard of it probably, but they wouldn't let her have her Lyrica. They wouldn't let her have Tramadol, which is again, a very low threshold, non-narcotic, but still, I don't even know what the fuck it's classified as, but it's on some schedule somewhere. And so they fucked up her meds that we had fought for years with multiple doctors to get dialed in. She was not comfortable. She was not happy. I'm like, well, we can always, you know, go back to AA. It's working. It can work. And she started going back to AA, but she just, she had things that she couldn't talk to me about. And it was her secrets that fucking killed her. That's really important. Now, had she been able to say that she had cheated on me with this business associate of hers, I could have worked with that, you know? I mean, I was far from a pure, beautiful individual from the beginning of my existence on the planet. You know, I used to use a Harley Davidson to sort girls out every night and throw them on the back and you either ride them around the block or you go up in the hills for a, a good ride. Right. Right. We were no saints. That's for sure. <laughs> so yeah, I was, you know, evil, wicked, mean, and nasty. Don't step on the grass, Sam. Has she ever heard any old step wall scenes? I totally understand. I, in, in that sense, like when we're not able to open up and be, I don't even want to call it authentic because that's not because it doesn't come to authenticity. It comes to being, in shame. Yeah. And that was the thing. She was ashamed of what she'd done. She felt really bad about it. And it's what fucking children is. I, the last night for her on earth, I, you know, kissed her goodbye. And she said, be sure and get a pizza on the way home. Okay. Cause I was driving down to chair this meeting that I chair every now Sunday night. Then I was doing both Saturday night and Sunday night. And Ellen, right. You had, you were these are both, this is this, a meeting called the Psychic Change. It's an A meeting at the Alamo, at the South King Alamo Club in Auburn, Washington. And that's where I had gone crawling back into AA. Four years ago, they didn't, you know, you'd be lucky if there's anybody there to chair the meeting. But I got involved with service and recovery down there and have stayed actively involved with that group, as well as the two more a closer home groups that I got involved with up here. Just, yes, I'm a sick boy and I need lots of help. 
I had multiple sponsors. I thought that was really interesting that you brought up. I heard about that and I thought it was really interesting to bring that up too, that you were saying, you had said to me, I got the sponsors, not the ones that I needed, the ones that I wanted. And I think that's really important because sometimes. Yeah, but that was the thing is the one that I needed was the one is my current sponsor, Mikey, because he was, he's about two years ahead of me. Yeah. And sometimes we need that honesty. When he had the fire in his belly, he was highly motivated. My previous two sponsors, my last sponsor had passed away just before I left Iowa. And he was 30 plus years sober when he passed. But he was also Zen as fuck. I mean, he was the picture of the Buddha, you know, had the big round belly and the bald head and just Chuck was at peace with the universe. It's beautiful. He didn't give a shit whether I worked any of them fucking steps or not. He didn't poke me in the ass. He let me do things my way. And so I dawdled, diddled and know because my ex had suggested that i should run through the steps so of course i will take my dog ass sweet time slowly meandering through the steps but i have actually worked all 12 steps i actually have a sponsee i actually have a second one well i did up until about three days ago when he stopped texting me so i need to text him and see if he's there yeah and then i, I thought it was really interesting also you brought up raulito raulito played a very important part in your life too huh that's because I met him at the Alamo Club, and he actually has met my wife, had met my wife before she passed away. But for a brief interval, I was his sponsor. And then when I had my last pop off the pipe, you know, I mean, we're talking one hit, but I consciously made the decision that I was going to smoke this piece. This I was going to find enough weed in this little grinder on the shelf because I hadn't thrown anything out after she passed away. I gave the maintenance guy at the building we were living in all of the weed but there's enough in this little grinder that I you know scraped real good I could get just enough for just one hit and it's going to be some good shit it was like sitting there watching myself do this you know this process and, and this was shortly after your wife had passed six months I think after. okay and so I you know found enough put it in the pipe lit it up inhaled deeply and then went, what the fuck did you just do? Because I was two days away from 15 months clean. So, oh, wow. So then what happened? Well, what happened was I wrestled with myself. This was, this is where the rubber hits the road because I had wrestled with myself, whether I was going to tell anybody, whether I was going to do the right thing, or whether I was just say, fuck it and not worry about it. But I knew if I did that, then I was going to be fucking good. So I got honest with myself first. Then with Raul and with our spon my sponsor, then, who is now also Raul's sponsor. We now share the same sponsor, but we talk to each other more often than not. And it was shortly after that that he apparently had found this app called IAS. And he convinced me to put it on my cell. I'm like, what the fuck do I want to put an app on my phone for? I did online recovery before. I don't want this shit on my phone. Oh, put it on your fucking phone. Okay, fine. I'll put it on my phone. So I joined IAS in March of 2020, and that's about the time that the Sober Squad kids were deciding that maybe they needed to start these Zoom things. I didn't open the inside of the app until, you know, spring of 21. Wow. Owned for over a year before I actually interacted with it. So you were like, ah, it's a daily counter. And I don't need a daily day counter because I know what day I got sober, you know, it's just that simple. He's like, oh, you should come, you know, Look at some of this shit. What the fuck are you talking about? Hit the community button. Oh, there's people here. Oh, I didn't know. 
So I start looking and I, you know, piggyback off of a couple of his posts. And then in like April of 2021, I actually wrote one without piggybacking off of Raul. And the rest, as they say, is history. He conned me into coming into these fucking Zooms. <laughs> Here, come have fun with the kids. Okay, I can do that too. And yeah, now I, I don't know how many I actually, I do usually Tuesdays, Thursdays. I run the Friday night show or have more often than not for the, you know, Friday midnight, whatever you want to call it. And currently also picked up the Saturday morning and until somebody else steps up the Saturday afternoon, just because I can and I'm available and it doesn't clash with anything else I'm doing. And then we also do the Sunday morning with the boys club. Beautiful. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I mean, you do so much for our community. You really do everything that you've been through as far as in your own journey and with your wife the past and i'm so sorry for your loss because it just I, it happened about three years ago right three and a half yeah yeah and you talk about you had spoken to me and you had talked about depression you didn't know you were in depression well, i had no fucking idea that i was depressed because i had i have these two dogs that get my ass up and out of bed every day whether i want to get out of bed or not but you know, I didn't realize for probably a year and a half, almost two years after she passed, just how much of a depression I was in and how fast I was trying to run away from myself. You know, I'm pretty sure there's something to do with survivor's remorse in that process. Why couldn't I have helped her? Why couldn't I have saved her? Because I couldn't. It was beyond my scope. No, I totally under, I, I get that. And I also get the fact of the depression part of it with all of that umph that you had in the depression you kind of almost seem like you did like a mental pull-up because you pulled yourself up out of that because of the two doggies that you have a teacup a maltese teacup and a pit pug mix adorable adorable and the teacup i thought we were still talking about getting a dog and she said he'll be at SeaTac on sunday excuse me i didn't know you could buy a dog on the internet yes you can he was delivered at SeaTac. Airport here in Seattle, Easter Sunday, 2014. And he fit in the palm of my hand. Beautiful. Now I'll have a 24-7 full-time friend because Finley was her first dog ever in the world. See, I grew up on a farm. I grew up with animals all the time. You know, we had dogs, cats, goats, sheep, whatever, ponies, cows, the whole nine yards. But she was a concrete angel, born and bred in the Bronx. And she thought corn came in a can on the shelf at the store. She had no idea when she landed the first time on an airplane in Iowa, what all that green stuff was out there in the fields. And the first time taking her back to the airport, I stopped, walked out to the cornfield, broke off an ear, brought it back here. This is what grows out here. And yeah, she was a big city girl. She was not familiar with how things actually work. So, so the doggies, they're just the cutest dogs. You have two dogs, the Maltese and the Pug, right? Yep. And Brody, we imported from Tucson because her business partner had got him for her for while she was down there. And she didn't want him to be turned into a vicious animal. So he actually fit under an airline seat when we brought him up from Tucson. Because Finley and I flew down to Tucson to help abscond with the black dog. So, yes, we've not only stolen other things in the past, but we've stolen dogs too now. So. I love it. And I thought it was really interesting now, Doug, also that you have your motorcycle and your, what are your plans now? And I really want to preface this, that all of this is possible through sobriety. 
Well, fact, because if I was getting fucked up, I wouldn't have enough clarity to A, maintain employment. You know, I mean, when I went back into AA in 2018, after smoking weed alcoholically and losing, you know, at that point, that wasn't the first job that I lost in the last five years. That was like the third or fourth probably. But six months later, I get a job where I'm having more fun than I've ever had in my life playing with prototype toys, you know, prototype development tools, build really fancy toys. Who the fuck gets to play with toys? You know, I mean, I started off my career in avionics. I went from playing with airplane stuff to playing with train stuff. Well, helicopters for a few years, but to playing with trains, to coming out here to working on the radios that they put on the trains to, you know, make trains safe, to played with boats for a little bit and then drilling equipment for a little bit and then toys evolve. Here we go. You know, I'm sitting there and they like, we just don't have enough work to keep you busy. Well, yeah, I've recognized that. And I'm trying to learn how to do databases and stuff like that. But I'm, I do embedded systems. I do things that have to work, whether the users are there or not, the shit just has to work. So yeah, ended up, they're like, we're going to have to let you go in a couple of weeks. Okay, cool. And so just for fun, I go on to LinkedIn and just for fun, browse the jobs available. And oh, there's one that says Boeing. Oh, they're looking for somebody with sat comments. Oh, I did that 30 fucking years ago. 29 at that point, but yeah. And just for fun, I threw them a resume. And a week later, they shot me a note back, said, hey, we'd like to talk to you. Really? Okay, cool. And a week after that, I have an interview. A week after that, I've done awesome. Two weeks after that, I get to go take one of those tests that I know I can pass. <laughs> you know? Yeah, here we are. I get to work for the biggest or one of the biggest airplane companies in the fucking world working on shiny brand new toys that people fly all over the planet on. I mean, I can still walk onto aircraft and look at equipment on business and regional jets. And I had my hands on and actually helped write code. For so, And it's a beautiful thing because you're able to do it not in that stress of the anxiety or of the, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I haven't had a hangover in a long time and I try to reduce stress when possible. And, you know, and the more I get agitated about shit, the more everybody just says, slow down, take your time. <sighs> okay. And I mean, right now, yeah, it's fucking incredible. Yeah. Looking at a bike ride next month, that's going to intersect with oh, a few people I've heard from this app thing that may be in this place called Moab, Utah sometime in October. And that's most likely going to be on my way back from the East Coast because I'm going to see if I can cross paths with my son. He's going to Scotland this month to get married. And then he's got some training activities. He's active duty Air Force, so his schedule is not negotiable. If he's available, cool. If he's not available, well, I'm still going to have a really long, beautiful motorcycle ride because I haven't done an epic ride in a long time. And the boys will be riding along. Currently, we've put over 7,000 miles on that motorcycle and sidecar since it came home in December of 2019. And yeah, we're looking at 6,000 miles on this trip minimum. Wow. So you're bringing along the doggies because you have the boys, you have your little, you have your sidecar for them. I mean, yes, that's sidecar. Have I seen it? Yeah. No, I haven't seen it. I don't know if I ever put any pictures of it on the thing, or at least none that actually showed where it was. So I don't know. Do I have the option to share here? 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, you so, can show. Well, I'll just show you on the phone. But uh, yeah, the boys have been, you know, that was one of the deals. Part of when I was in the depression, going back to Iowa on the road trip for a vacation slash high school reunion slash family reunion. And we're in the middle of Nebraska, 10 o'clock at night and went out for the last cigarette. Beautiful Midwest thunderstorm, you know, lightning, thunder, the whole nine yards, just starting up, just coming into Western Nebraska. And I hear a load of Harley hitting up on the on-ramp going out. Yep, yep, yep. Got to do it, got to do it. Because a buddy of mine from the program out here had sound this motorcycle for me on off route. And he pointed it out to me. And, well, I looked at it and it looked interesting, but it wasn't quite my color. I prefer blue Harleys to black ones because everybody's got a fucking black Harley. They're a dime a dozen. Blue, you get one blue Harley and a crowd of 20 black bikes, that blue bike just glows. But I got a black Harley. But my first Harley was black too, so I guess I can... <laughs> you don't have to compromise. But uh, yeah, no, what I, but what we're going to do is so you're going to send me that picture and post it next to your story so they can see the sidecar that you're going to be taking on your cross-country trip. So where are you going from where to where? Well, from here, which is Everett, Washington, to outside of Fayetteville, North Carolina, and back. And stopping at Moab. Pass through Moab on the way through, yes. And meeting the IAS family reunion. The, the IAS, the, just children of the app, as I call you. I love it. We are all children of the app. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, and that's just the way it is because, yeah, we're all God's children somewhere at some point. And, you know, if it wasn't for you guys, because that's why I do what I do with this app is because it enhances the quality of my sobriety. It enhances my ability to not take myself so seriously because I know, you know, in reality, the only thing I got is a lot more experience at doing really stupid shit than most of you guys do. Oh, I love that. Oh my God, that's, that is so awesome. I want that picture so we can put it up. Oh, look at the doggies. Oh my God, tiny, cute. And they don't jump out or anything. They're all, you got them all conditioned. They're, they're attached to the uh, seatbelts. <laughs> Brody has tried to jump out as soon as I put him in something. He's actually getting used to just getting in now. So picking him up by the handle and pushing him in. So. Well, it's, you know what? I think these are the gifts of sobriety. I really do. Well, absolutely. And it's a matter of, it gives you clarity. It gives you purpose. And it's so much more fun than waking up hungover all the time or waking up just in a blur or being, you know, comatose. I mean, the dreams can be so much more vivid. They can be so much more weird sometimes. You know, the drinking dreams, the drugging dreams. I mean, I've dreamt shit that I never would have imagined doing with relation to drugs and or alcohol. I mean, I don't remember. It's been a long time since I've had one. Not that long. It's been within the last year. The last one I had actually was a smoking dream because that's the last addiction that I put down was cigarettes as of nine months ago, last month. So congratulations. Congratulations. The other thing that I, I wanted to say is it's also not only on IES with the Zooms and you turn, you, you go to this cafe and it's mainly youth, right? No, actually the recovery cafe is targeted towards anybody that has any substance or addiction issues of any color, shape or form. I met an old boy in there that had been sober for 36 years and he was struggling with, you know, getting a job. He was struggling with grief. His sister had just passed away. 
They lost their parents like a year or so before, and he was between jobs, needed a place to hang out. I see a lot. And you count anybody under 50 as you, because, well, I mean, fuck, I'm 65. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, and there's a lot of kids, the primary kids that are in there are in their, you know, late 30s, early 40s. But they're coming in off the streets. They're coming in. They've been living on the fucking streets, living in their cars, whatever. These guys help them get hooked up with like Oxford houses. I don't know if you've heard of those places. Different types of recovery communities. They help them learn how to write resumes, learn how to learn how to become employable, learn how to live indoors, learn how to live with people. And I don't know where all they have them. I know, I think they started them in Seattle. And I know they've got a few of them out here, but I haven't really looked at it that close because I only get down once a week. I go down on a Friday afternoon to hang out with these kids because I can, because it's a different crowd, but it's they, all connected. Right. I was going to say that everything that you do is because of the sobriety. Yes. Well, and I, but I do it so that I can keep it. Right. Right. And I stop doing things positive. You know, I, I, that's one of the, one of the multiple things that I've become aware of just in this last four year recovery cycle is if you're not actively working towards recovery, you're actively working towards your demise. Right. I understand. You're not doing something positive. For right. Unity is such a huge part of that. All of the communities. I mean, my home groups, I've. The one I was invited, I'd never been invited to join a fucking home group before. I happened to fall into this group, my primary that I do Zoom meetings for them on Wednesday nights, because a friend of mine from down in Auburn was the guest speaker at their speaker meeting. And I misread the dates he put on Facebook. And so I got to the meeting a week before his speaker meeting. But I liked what they were doing in the meeting because they were reading this book called Drops the Rock. And it's all about step six and seven. And I, you know, went to the speaker meeting the following weekend because at that point, that one was a mile away from where my wife and I were living before she passed. I kept going back. I kept going back. And you're like, why don't you come join the group? Okay. Then got a service position, you know, got a greeter position, if you will, because that's how you start most of these groups. Greeting people at the door. Welcome to the Edmonds group. Glad you're here. Welcome to the Edmonds group. Glad you're here. Please, you know, come on in. And, and yeah, been hanging out with them for over three years now, over three and a half years. And the group itself has been in business since 1955. Wow. Oh, two guys in that group that have been members of that home group for over 30 years. Oh, wow. Are still active in service and community and recovery. It's incredible. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful legacy. And so that's kind of why... Like what I picked up hanging out with these guys is, yeah, stay active, stay involved, keep up, you know, meet new people. Learn because it's the new folks. It's the new folks that keeps it fresh. Right. And that's so true because honestly, Doug, I think it took me 11 months to even come to a Zoom, the big chicken. But, you know, you were and have been intricate in my recovery, my sobriety. Because we've related on so many different, so many different terms, family, daughter, husband, in so many different ways. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about sobriety is that, like you said, you, you only get to keep what you're willing to give away. But you, you are one of the pillars on the Sober Squad. You are, there's some things that available, just available. <laughs> I try to not stand and. At the front of the line, say, oh, listen to me, listen to me, fuck that. 
I'm available for service because I'm available for service. Yeah, Ben, you're kind. Me looking at you from my side, I'm like, I want to emulate you because I'm like, I can see how you've helped. Therefore, and I can see the fulfillment in that action. And through your... It's a joy watching lights come on. It's a joy watching the sparkle in their eyes. It's a joy when you go from watching, you know, this little black square on the screen, all of a sudden, oh, now they've got their microphone. Oh, they're starting to talk. Oh, my God. Oh, they're even going to show their fucking picture. And to watch that progression, that's, I just got the tinglys talking about that. And I don't know if you get them little tinglys in the back of your skull at all. I, for me, that's what I consider conscious, evidence of conscious contact with my higher power. Absolutely. I'm not going to name names because it doesn't matter what your higher power is or if there is one. I don't know if you watched any of that Taylor Hawkins special yesterday or the day before on, I think it was Saturday. There were so many times that the fucking tinglys were just intense. And I wasn't even a Foo Fighters fan until I saw this Italian bunch, the Rockin' 1000, do Learn to Fly. Somebody sent me that. I'm like, that's fucking awesome shit. Wow. And I'm still, you know, somebody asked me what my favorite Foo Fighters song was. I'm like, I only know one by name, and that's it. But that whole presentation, you know, when McCartney and Chrissy Hine were on there, it was just fucking incredible. And so many musicians and some of the moments listened to what a, you know, Rock star yet humble guy he was. Because he just liked to rest his legs, pants on one leg at a time. So, and he accepted the fact that he was in a very special place and a very special time. And that's what this community is for me. It's a very special place, very special time. Absolutely. I agree with you. I know that, you know, in the time that I, well, because I'm a baby in consideration, but it's from the progression from when we first met to where we are now. It's just a gift and a joy to me to be able to be part of this, be part of ingraining this story and have it in the ethers. Cool. So I really appreciate you. I wanted to ask you one last question. What would you say to anyone that hears your story? What is the number one advice or the takeaway that you would like for them to take away with your share? Well, honestly, if you ain't having fun with this recovery business, then you're fucking it up. Get over yourself. Don't take yourself too seriously. And accept the fact that we all got issues. We can get through them one day at a time, one hour at a time, one minute at a time, even as our good friend Molly says, 10 seconds at a time. That's what it fucking takes. You can get through this because you just have to hang on 10 more fucking seconds in the next 10 seconds and the next. And it's not, what am I looking for? It's not complicated, but it ain't fucking easy either. It sure as hell ain't rocket science. It's simple as shit. Just don't fucking pick up the first one. But everybody gets strung out over the, why you had the 15th or the 30th or whatever. Fuck that. If you just don't pick up the first one, but that shit is hard to do. Because we are ingrained to consume mass quantities. And we get it shoved down our throats by advertising every day. And I have a growling white animal that's telling me it's about time to do other things. So, oh, but yeah, my wife taught him to drink water from glass. Finley? Yes. Because she thought he should have fresh faucet water just like the rest of us. So, let me have all that trick. 
Oh my gosh. He'll sit there and growl until I look. I don't know if you can see that or not. I can see it perfectly. But yeah, she thought he should have fresh possum water. <laughs> so yeah, he's been drinking from a glass for eight years. Oh my goodness. He's like, I'm thirsty. Bring me a glass of water. He's parched over there. <laughs> oh, but I think he had nothing to drink all day. So. Well, I wanted to thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Doug. I really, really appreciate it. I really appreciate your story because your story is of hope. Well, that's one of the things that, you know, really impressed Bonnie Ann about the South Kingalano Club, which is where I go down to the psychic change meetings on the weekends on the side of the wall. Hope lives here. Beautiful. Appreciate having the opportunity to be of service to the organization and the community. It's been an honor and a privilege to be here tonight. Thank you so much and have a nice night.